Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Rachel and Aaron. Uh, Not only was it beautifully done, but it goes nicely with the psalm that we will be looking at this morning. Psalm 19 is our text, and uh, especially that first verse you did, we will see a lot of that in this particular text. As Aaron alluded to earlier as well, we continue to struggle as a nation and as individuals with many issues that do not have easy answers and therefore seemingly no immediate end in sight. And these ongoing struggles invariably lead to questions about God. Maybe even if we're honest, we'll admit that not only do we have questions about God, but sometimes we have doubts about God. If God is a loving God, then why is there so much pain and suffering, not only in the world, but even within the church. If God is a sovereign God, why does evil seem to prosper and those who perpetrate it go on living with no consequences? And yet those who serve the Lord faithfully sometimes seem to struggle through life. If God is a forgiving God, why does it seem like I am consistently being punished for my sins? These are just a few examples of the questions that run through our mind when we look at all that is going on around us. And my point in bringing them up is not to give you an answer for them. Rather, my point in bringing them up is to consider where we go to get answers for questions like this. In other words, where do we get our knowledge about God? This is an especially important question given the fact that there are numerous religions that claim all kinds of gods, and given the fact that even within our own religion, there is a tremendous amount of differing opinions about who and what God is. So does our knowledge about God come from popular opinion? That is majority rule. I mean, if so many people seem to believe this certain thing about God, then maybe it must be true. Does our knowledge of God come from the world of Twitter? or pithy statements about God that we like and then retweet for all those who follow us? I certainly hope that's not where you're getting your knowledge about God. Perhaps our knowledge of God maybe unconsciously comes from examining our own lives and our own circumstances and then coming to conclusions about who God must be based on what is going on in my life. Well, I trust you understand that the only sure thing we know about God is that which he has revealed to us. In other words, God is so different and distinct from us that left to ourselves, we could never figure him out. In some sense, of course, we never will. But what I mean is we cannot know God except for the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Theologians have always classified God's revelation in two broad categories. One is what we call general revelation, or you might say God's world. That is the creation around us. 
And then the second category is called specific revelation or special revelation. It is what we find in God's Word, the Bible. And so those are going to be my two points this morning because that is exactly what Psalm 19 does for us. It first talks about general revelation, verses 1 through 6. That is God's creation praising and glorifying God. And then beginning in verse 7 through the rest of the psalm, it talks specifically about God's specific revelation. That is the Word of God. It is so neatly divided as a psalm that many people believe that this was initially two different psalms and that an editor or perhaps David himself saw that put together, they would pull together these two types of revelation and so it was put together as one. But regardless of its background, we have it as one and so we will read it as one. Now this is another psalm in which we know nothing of the, the background. We know no context that led to the writing of this psalm. But it is, to be, it is believed to be another psalm of David. So it is a psalm of revelation. C.S. Lewis called this the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them my father wrote them both. That is what we're going to see in this psalm. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. All right, that's the first half. That's general revelation. Then verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, a very easy outline this morning, two points. General re revelation is where we will start, and then we will go to specific revelation. So general revelation, 
looking at God's world and how it proclaims God's glory and God's greatness. It is a recurring theme throughout the Psalms that creation shouts aloud the glory of God. You're probably familiar with this first verse in our Psalm, probably from maybe not knowing where it was, but every time a good Christian takes a picture of a sunrise at the beach or a sunset at the beach or a mountain picture and posts it, it is a necessity that you add Psalm 19 verse 1 underneath your picture. So we see this all the time now with social media. The heavens declare the glory of God. Did you notice that the heavens is plural? It's not singular, it is plural. The ESV uses the word heaven. The ESV is the version I'm using here. It uses the word heaven 493 times in 464 different verses. And it is usually plural, whether it is translated that way or not. It literally means the heights, referring to that which is raised up or lofty. You may recall Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, I was taken up into the third heaven, or the third heavens. So just like so many other words, there are multiple uses of this word heaven. The closest heavenly realm to us is the atmospheric heaven or the sky. And you see in the second half of verse 1, the word sky is used. Psalm 147 and verse 8 says, God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. So the closest part of heaven is that which we can see in the atmosphere. And then beyond that, the, the second part of heaven is the planetary heavens where we see the sun, the moon, and the planets. And clearly the psalmist here in Psalm 19 is talking about those two aspects of heaven, all that we can see with our eyes around us. There is a third part to heaven. That's the part Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that is the way we normally use the word. When we use the word heaven, we are talking about the place where God dwells, the place where God is with his holy angels and those saints who have already departed this earth. That is what we call heaven. But that is not what we're talking about this morning from Psalm 19 when we see the word heaven. We are talking about the creation which we see around us and how it is declaring the glory of God. And so when you post that beach picture, and by the way, I was at the beach this week, and we did the obligatory sunrise on the beach. Tracy and I got up early one morning, and we walked out there, and she took who knows how many pictures of the sunrise. And it was all I could do not to put one up on the screen for you this morning. But you've seen those, you've taken those, and you've probably put Psalm 19.1 at the bottom of your post. And so the heavens are declaring the glory of God by its mere beauty. When we look out at what is going on in creation, whether it be the beach or the mountains or a, a host of other things, we see the beauty of what God made. And as believers, we instinctively realize that they are crying out to the glory of God. Creation also is so complex that it cries out for a creator. 
I used to watch a lot of animal shows, and there's all kinds of intricacies in the animal kingdom. It's amazing uh, the, the things that each, each distinctive animal has that allows them to live, and if there was one variable off, they would cease to exist, but God has seen fit to intricately put all of these things together so that it works just right. In fact, if you can stand one more beach story, seems like I was sort of wishing I was still at the beach, doesn't it? When we got there the first day, we'd never seen this before, but literally there were hundreds of starfish on the beach. So you could tell every time someone was there for their first day because they were pointing out the starfish, but they were all over the place. And so uh, I Googled, why are there so many starfish out here? And it seems that uh, if the weather is extremely rough or the sea is rough, or if the waters are warmer than usual, these starfish are dislodged from where they live and they are washed ashore. So you guessed it, we constantly saw people who wanted to save these starfish, right? So they're constantly walking up and down the beach, picking them up and throwing them back in the ocean, trying to save them, except for Tracy. Now, Tracy's gonna be in the nursery in second service, so she won't hear this. But uh, Tracy didn't want to save one uh, put, by putting it back in the ocean. She wanted to bring one home because she's got this um, sandbox kind of thing as the centerpiece in our kitchen table that she uses in the summertime. So it's got seashells and sand in there, and she wanted to put a starfish or two in there as well. So she found one she liked that was just the right size. She brought it back up to where I was sitting under the tent reading my book, and there was a cooler sitting next to me, and she laid that starfish out on the cooler to dry. And she went back to the water. And as soon as she did, those hundreds if not thousands of legs on that starfish began to move. And I started watching it. And it crawled across the cooler until it fell off into the sand. And when it fell off in the sand, it never moved again. I assume that's because it was waiting on the tide to come back in and carry it back out. You see, those starfish, most of them, are going to make it. Because nature, this is what the article that I uh, Googled said, that you don't have to throw them back in because nature is going to take care of it. The tides are going to come back in and the starfish are going to go back out, most of them, and they're going to live. Now, that article said nature. We say the creator. By the way, just to, so if you're concerned, when Tracy came back to the tent, she saw her starfish on the sand. She asked what happened, and I said, it's alive. It crawled off. She picked it back up and threw it back in the ocean. And as far as I know, it's somewhere south of Myrtle Beach right now, living a very happy life. My point in all of this is that God takes care of his creation. And the creation is so intricate that the rhythm of creation testifies to God. The beauty of creation testifies to God. And this declaration goes on without ceasing. It is continual. Day after day, the text says, night after night. It is not like the prophets in the Old Testament who would come and speak a word of God and then be gone for a long time. This kind of proclamation is daily and nightly and on and on. Of course, verse 3 says it is, not, it is done without words. This is not a contradiction with verse 2. This simply acknowledges that, that we are personifying creation. So there's not real words spoken, but creation is indeed proclaiming the glory of God. And verse 4, this declaration is universal. 
That is, it reaches to all the ends of the earth. Paul quotes verse 4 in Romans chapter 10. In that particular passage of Scripture, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. And then he asks the question, have they not heard? And his answer to have they not heard is to quote verse 4 of this psalm. Of course they've heard. Creation testifies to the glory of God, and the extent of that goes throughout all of the world. This should lead everyone to seek God and to thank God for bringing them into existence and ultimately then to worship him. But we know that's not the case. Instead, humans naturally suppress the truth of God. They suppress God's general revelation, either by denying that God exists altogether or by creating other gods, that is, idols, to take his place. In fact, most believe that this portion of the psalm, primarily verses 4 through 6, is a direct attack at the neighbors of Israel who often worshipped many gods, including the sun. And so the psalmist is saying it makes no sense to worship the sun because the sun has been created by the one true God and the sun continually cries out and proclaims the glory of God. We see it in so many ways here. The sun's rays reaching into all of the earth with the same message. And the sun pictured as a bridegroom, not the bride, but the bridegroom with its strength and power emphasized. Nothing is hidden from its heat, something we can testify to. I don't know how hot it was here this week, but where I was, I was up at, at one morning at 7 o'clock, and I checked my weather app. It said it was 85 degrees at 7 in the morning, and it felt like 92. Lauren checked it one afternoon, and it said it felt like 109. So it was hot this past week. And when we talk about the sun's rays, it's also talking about its heat here. And that is why it says there that the sun uh, goes into the tent. That probably is speaking about how at nighttime, obviously, the sun is uh, gone and the darkness comes out. And then the next morning, of course, the sun reemerges. Now, all of this is the idea that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 uh, to answer the question about those who've never heard. We tend to think that this is a very perplexing question. Many of us have asked it. Others of us have been asked by others about this. Well, what about those who have never heard? Well, Paul answers that question. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says general revelation testifies to the existence of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you can be saved from that. That's why we're going to move on in just a moment to specific revelation. But there is no excuse for thinking there is not a God because creation continually testifies of his handiwork and of his glory. All right, now we move to our second point, and that is special revelation. That is the word of God. We know that creation is not specific enough. You can use special or specific. I'll probably use them interchangeably. Theologians call it both. 
But we know that general revelation is not specific enough. In other words, you can't be saved from general revelation because general revelation does not teach us that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. We, don't, we can't get all of that from creation. Creation points us to the existence of God and then specific revelation, that is the word of God, teaches us how we can know this God. And so the second half of this psalm deals with that. And as glorious as creation is, it cannot compare to God's word. So those who say that they can worship God better at the beach or out on the lake or in the mountains, they don't need the word of God, they've got the creation of God, do not understand the distinction between general revelation and specific revelation. Because you can't just stop with the, with the glory of creation, you've got to move forward to specific revelation. In fact, there's a very, there's a very good text in, in Peter's uh, letter. Peter, of course, you know, is one of the disciples who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is, he saw the glory of Jesus like the other disciples, except for the two with him, did not. And in in 2 Peter, he is recounting that incident. He's talking about how he saw all of this because he was on the mountain. It must have been one of the most significant moments of his life. And you might imagine that others would have thought, I wish I'd have been there. But you know what Peter says right after talking about that? He says this. He says, we have something better, something more sure, the prophetic word of God. Peter is saying that what you and I have in our hands or on our phones. This revelation from God is better than what Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the glory of Jesus. That is how important the word of God is. We talk about it a lot. But perhaps I failed to mention why we need to read and study God's word. And that is what the psalmist is going to do for us. In verses 7 through 9, there are six parallel lines, all of them describing God's word. Each of these lines begin with a synonym for the word of God. Then that is followed by an adjective which describes the Bible. And then the final statement is a statement about what the Bible does. So all six of these lines follow that pattern. And so we start in verse 7. The word of God is perfect, reviving the soul. Perfect meaning complete so that it covers every aspect of life. I'm not saying it speaks to every issue. I'm not saying that you can find a chapter and verse that will answer every question or decide every dilemma. I'm simply saying that the Bible does in fact speak to all the various aspects of life. It is an all-sufficient revelation. It is sufficient for salvation and it is sufficient for our sanctification. We pray about and sing about revival And this statement here tells us that if there is going to be revival, it is not going to come apart from God's word. It is God's word. God uses his word to revive us or to make us alive again. That's what the word revive means. Now, if you're finding your life spiritually to be a bit lethargic, maybe you need to look at your relationship with the word of God because there's going to be a connection. If your spiritual life is not where it needs to be, it is in all likelihood because your reading and studying of God's word is not where it needs to be. So what does he mean when he talks about reviving the soul? 
We, we use that word soul almost exclusively to think about salvation. That is, we think about how souls need to be saved. But once those souls are saved, the soul is not done. And we don't tend to think about the rest of that unless we're in a service and we're singing, it is well with my soul. And then we start wondering, is it really well with my soul? Or am I just singing a hymn? Jeremiah, the prophet, says that knowing and following what he calls the old paths will bring rest for our souls. And I think that's what many of us desperately need. We need rest, not physically, not mentally. We go on vacations for that. We take time every year to recharge physically and mentally by getting away from all the other things we do. But what many of us need is the very same thing for our soul. We need to be refreshed, revived, and it will not come apart from God's word. The second uh, statement there is that the word of God is trustworthy or sure, making wise uh, those who follow it. That's also found in verse 7. If we follow the directions, we will find salvation. We will find contentment and joy and eternal life. Wisdom for living is exactly what so many people are missing. Thus, they make poor decisions and shipwreck their lives. That is why we did the series on wisdom, because we need to know wisdom for our lives. And spiritually speaking, or from a Christian standpoint, wisdom is found in the Word of God. The third is found there in verse 8. It is right, and so it brings rejoicing. Right means straight, as opposed to being crooked. So there is such a thing as truth. Again, you know that we live in a world that denies there is absolute truth. God's word says there is absolute truth, and it's found here in God's word. So walking a straight path brings joy. Again, worldly wisdom does not say that. Worldly wisdom says we do what we want to do. We do what's fun. That's where you're going to find joy. God's word says walk in his path, and you will find rejoicing or joy. The fourth one, again, still in verse 8, it is pure, so it brings light. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful truths from your word. We said in the Holy Spirit series that it is right for us to ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes so that we can understand what we are reading in the word of God. And the word of God then opens our eyes to the truths about God, bringing us light rather than darkness and giving us the right path to walk rather than stumbling along. Verse 9, it is clean, so it endures. Now, fear doesn't sound like a synonym to us for the Bible or for the law or for the commandments of God, but it is. That which is pure or clean remains. Corrupt things decay and fade away. Finally, still in verse 9, it is true and thus righteous. Now, we have a rather popular saying these days, I want a relationship, not rules. It sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, I just want Jesus. I don't want a bunch of rules. I don't want a bunch of religion. I just want a relationship. Well, how about trying that in the other relationships in your life? Parents, is that the way you parent? Uh, we don't have any rules for our kids. We just want a relationship. No, of course not. You have rules. It's for their good. It's for their benefit. It's to warn them. Try going to work on Tuesday after you take Monday off. 
and tell your boss, you know what, over the holiday weekend, I was just thinking, I'm tired of all the rules around here. I just want a relationship with you and see if you still have a job by, by Friday. There's rules in, in all aspects of life. And so to say that you don't want rules in the religion is to misunderstand the word of God. I mean, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the rules are not bad. In fact, it says here that they are for our good. They're for our benefit. Now, the last line that, uh, that we just looked at in verse 9 doesn't follow the pattern of the rest because verses 10 and 11 expand upon verse 9. That is, it explains what this is all about. So these rules, again, a synonym, are to be desired even more than gold or honey. So the next time you think, I don't want any rules, you understand that that's the exact opposite of what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God are to be to us more valuable than any possession and sweeter than any dessert that you might want to have. The Bible is not an archaic book that we need to discard. It is not a juvenile book that we need to ignore. It is not an insignificant book that we are to disobey. It is something that we are to desire more than any sweet that you might like or more than any possession because it satisfies much greater than any of those things can. And so in verse 11, it says there, because it warns us against sin and it's a great reward as well. Well, the last portion of the psalm reflects on what this means for the psalmist. In other words, he gets personal in the last few verses, verses 12 through 14, and some of it is a prayer. He realizes that he has not kept all these laws. After all those statements about the word of God and the commandments and the laws, the psalmist realizes that he's not kept them all. He's been disobedient. And we, yes, while the, world, the word searches our hearts, we must pray and allow the Holy Spirit to work so that we then can confess these sins. So he even asks forgiveness for sins he's not aware of. Now, what, what is that about? You know, there are some people who, who misunderstand this. We, we quoted earlier, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the implication, if we don't understand that, is that if we don't confess our sins, then we're not forgiven. And that's not what it means. You do understand, I trust, that when you by faith, trust in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. They are all, that's, that's why we call it a total redemption or complete redemption. All of our sins are forgiven. Well, why then are we to confess them? Because God wants us to agree with him. God wants us to see our sin and know that it's a sin against him. And confession is saying the same thing, that is agreeing with God. Okay, so what about those sins that we don't know about? Those sins that we forget to confess? They're still forgiven. So don't misunderstand and think, I, I'm not forgiven because I forgot to confess or I didn't know to confess. And so in this case, the psalmist says, hey, if I've got some sins I wasn't aware of, I, I want to confess those too. I know there are some. But then he moves on from there and talks about sins that he is very much aware of pleading with God that he might have the strength to avoid committing presumptuous, that is bold or calculated sins, 
Sins committed against the light and the knowledge of God because he doesn't want sin to rule and reign in his heart and life. The concluding verse, like the first verse, is a verse you've probably heard. This is one of the preacher's favorite verses. You've, you've heard it before, uh, probably in a prayer, that prior to a sermon, a preacher will pray and use this verse. Let the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But it is clearly not reserved just for that context. It is a prayer of the psalmist that his words and thoughts would be pleasing to God, finishing then with the great truths that God is our rock and redeemer. The psalmist knew that his sin needed redemption and that God is that redeemer. You know, sometimes people will claim that if God would just speak, I mean, if God would just say something to them, that they would believe. Jesus told a story one time about a rich man who dies and goes to torment and a poor man who goes to uh, the, the, the feet of Abraham or the bosom of Abraham. And this rich man who is in torment uh, pleads for some sort of relief. But when he doesn't get relief, he says, will you at least send someone back to tell my five brothers that this torment is real so that they will not come here also? And Jesus' response is this, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, Jesus was saying, they've got the written revelation of God. Now, we've got more than they had, but they had Moses and the prophets. If they weren't going to believe that, then they weren't going to believe even if someone would come back from the dead, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus did. And their response was exactly what Jesus said. That is, the vast majority of people did not believe even after Jesus rose from the grave. What I'm trying to say is God has spoken. He has spoken in creation all around us. And Jesus said, if you and I don't praise him, the rocks will do so. They will declare his glory. And I want to encourage you this afternoon to go back and read Psalm 19 again specifically looking for all of the words that talk about speech. Not, not just the word speech, but any word that is similar to that. Declare, proclaim. It's all over this psalm because this psalm is telling us that God has spoken. He has spoken unmistakably. He has spoken undeniably, leaving everyone in the same position. And that is we must respond to the God who has revealed himself. And, and not responding is responding because you're denying what God has revealed. So God has spoken. He is not silent. So what's our response? Well, obviously, we need to know the specific revelation about Jesus and respond by faith. Because as great as creation is, we cannot be saved through that. We can only be saved through understanding what Christ has done for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here this morning or to be online uh, participating and worshiping this morning. And I know we sometimes, um, we sometimes feel as if you are silent. We sometimes talk about how our prayers aren't being answered or we, we hesitate and doubt whether or not you're listening. 
But Lord, the psalmist has made very clear today that you have indeed spoken. And in fact, you have spoken loudly and continually. And therefore, all are without excuse. And I pray that those who do not know you, that have not responded to the specific revelation of your word and what that says about what Jesus has done for us, that they would respond today by faith. And I pray that as the creation declares your glory, we would do so as well, both with our lips and with our lives, that we too would join with all of creation, declaring the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.